There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 8 The Hat Brim Line So, in the last episode we learned a lot. The German police had released a new press release and in that press release there were more details than we've ever seen before about that body. And specifically, the weights that were found with that body. They were confirmed as being two 3 kilogram metal shoe lasts. What wasn't mentioned in that press release was how they were attached to the body. But we know that, and it's worth reminding ourselves. They were attached to the belt loops on the trousers, one on each side. We don't know what material actually attached them, but we do know there were six kilograms in weight, evenly distributed, to hold down a 75 kilo, 197 centimeter man. German police think that's evidence of murder. I have to be honest, we don't. It's extremely unlikely to be an accident, but both the suicide and the murder options appear to be valid explanations at this point in time. It's important to keep an open mind on these things. Our key priorities as we entered this last two weeks of the investigation were very much centered on how we could take that information and move it forward. But, as often happens, our plans were overtaken by other events. A couple of days after finishing the last episode, I got a Facebook Messenger message from someone I didn't know. And that's always intriguing to me, because people don't normally do that unless they've got something to share with me. And they did. But they wanted to remain anonymous, which is everyone's prerogative. What they did was send me a copy of another newspaper report about the case, published in Die Zeit, a popular German newspaper. And that report went into even more detail than ever before about the investigation, revealing more details and more photographs. So in the first part of this episode, I wanted to share with you that additional information and there's things there you won't have heard before or seen before. But first, I want to crave your indulgence for five minutes. Just humour me on something. And it's in relation to the man who fell from the pride of Flanders. Remember him. He's the 50-year-old man who disappeared on the night of the 19th of April 1994, three months before the body was found. 
he was travelling from Zeebrugge to Felixstowe. He never recovered his car. He had simply disappeared. A couple of Facebook members have asked on the Facebook group, why would he do that? Why not, if he's going to commit suicide, just commit suicide in the UK? Well, I have a theory. Now, a couple of things I need to mention before I go into that theory. Firstly, we don't know at all whether the man from the ferry and the man found near Heligoland are connected. We don't know that yet. He just happens to go missing at the right time, in the right place, and he's the right age. And secondly, this is entirely speculative. I've no evidence for it. So please don't get too attached to this theory. It's almost certainly wrong. And there could be a thousand other explanations. And I'd be interested on your thoughts on the Facebook page of what your explanation might be. But here's my starter explanation. There's a man, an Englishman, travels from Felixstowe to Zeebrugge with the full intention of committing suicide. But before he does, there's something on that side of the channel he needs to visit one last time. Something extremely important to him. Could be a person, could be a place. A place with a very deep connection. A place he needs to see before his departure from the world. Now we know the man who went missing in 1994 was 50, which means he was born somewhere between May 1943 and April 1944. He's a war baby. His father almost certainly was fighting in that war. In Belgium and Holland, there are two major conflicts in the Second World War. In 1940, as the German forces overran the Low Countries, and in 1944, when the Allies recapture Belgium and Holland. Both were bloody, desperate conflicts, very costly in the lives on both sides. Now, this man's father could have fought in both 1940 and 1944, but clearly he survived 1940 and three years later, his son's born. But what if he fought in 1944, his son one year old, and didn't survive, died a war hero somewhere in Belgium or Holland? Because Belgium and Holland are littered with allied war graves, both from the First World War and from the Second World War. So here's my completely speculative idea of why someone would commit suicide on the way back from visiting Belgium. Did he need to visit his father's grave, commune in some way with him before finally ending it all, explaining, justifying, maybe seeing it for one last time? We do suspect the man was returning to the UK. He definitely went somewhere before ending his life. And his date of birth, 1943 or 1944, might just help us to explain exactly what it was he was visiting. But it's a flight of fancy, and I need now to get back to reality. This report in Desight, which has real facts. Now it's a very long article, and it's behind a paywall, so I'll read you parts of it, the parts and facts 
that take our investigation further. It's from Desight, published on the 17th of April 2022. I'll put a link to it on the Facebook page if you want to read it in full. It's Monday, July the 11th, 1994. The sky over the North Sea is clear and the sea is calm when shortly before half past eight in the morning, a ship belonging to the Federal Border Police crosses the German Bight west of Heligoland, several nautical miles from the coastline. The crew of the Bredstedt is on patrol and has just reached the traffic separation scheme, a kind of highway for ships. When one of the officers sees a lifeless body floating in the water, they throw out a net and use a ship's crane to get the body on board. One of the men writes down the coordinates, 54 degrees 80 minutes north, 7 degrees 30 minutes east. The dead man is tall and lanky, 197 centimetres and weighs only 75 kilograms. He wears navy blue creased trousers, a long sleeved light blue shirt, a striped tie and smart black leather shoes. The body is weighed down with weights. The forensic medicine states at the time of his death the man was between 45 and 50 years old and he must have been in the water for several months. He shows the fatty wax formation on his skin, a light layer that envelops the body like soap and partially protects it from decomposition. Several ribs and the skull are broken. The Wilhelmshaven police investigated for two years a murder and found nothing. No trace, no relatives, no indication of a perpetrator and they buried the dead man in the cemetery meadow in Wilhelmshaven. The investigator sends the shoes to Great Britain and learns they are men's slippers from the English manufacturer Church & Co. So-called Church's moccasins, size 46, made in Italy, sold in England. The inner linings made from buffalo leather, new value around 800 German Deutschmarks. Heels and soles are later replaced, but also come from England. Did the dead man live or work in England? The underpants he was wearing are from Marks and Spencer, a British retailer. Was he a businessman? In 1997, the investigator sends the dead man's skull to the FBI in Washington to commission a computer-aided and therefore inexpensive facial reconstruction. The phantom image of a man with distinctive facial features and high cheekbones comes back from Washington. The investigator sends it to Scotland Yard asking for help. Scotland Yard never reacts and the investigator has to take care of current investigations. The case becomes a cold case. So, what new things do we learn from that report? Well, there are two major things. Firstly, the exact coordinates, that's very useful. And secondly, the nature of the injuries that the body had suffered. Now, also, very usefully, there are pictures in this report, pictures I've never seen before. Now, I'm gonna try and post those pictures onto the Facebook page, though I realize not every listener has access to the Facebook page, so it's important that I describe them to you. And there are two key photographs, one showing the skull and one showing the shirt he was wearing 
Closely examining those photographs, and they're not the best quality, but they still do reveal some new things. Firstly, the skull. Two things immediately jump out to me. There's a thin crack, a fracture, that seems to be running laterally across the front of the skull. Seems to go from the right-hand side of the skull horizontally until maybe three quarters of the distance across the forehead. It may go further than that. That's clearly a crack, but it's not an open wound. And secondly, the teeth. There are a lot of teeth missing at the front and round the back. In fact, to such a degree, it's difficult to imagine this man not having a very significant dental plate or dentures. Now, I suppose there's a chance that these teeth were all lost in the incident, but so many? I'm inclined to believe this was the condition of his teeth in his lifetime. Secondly, the shirt. We're told that the shirt is light blue. It's difficult to tell on the picture we've got. There's a label, a black label, attached to the back of the neck. It's badly worn. Strands of fabric are hanging from it. In fact, it looks like someone has cut it at some point in the past, maybe because it was irritating them, leaves the loose ends to fray after months in the water. Any codes or sizes which are on that black label are not clear, we can't read them. The other thing that stands out about the shirt is the staining, the staining on both collars around the neck. There is further evidence of discoloration around the top of the shirt, but not to a significant degree. Most of the staining is around the collar and the neck area. Now it's probably blood, but it's not covered, it's confined to that area. It is particularly noticeable on the right hand collar, which might correspond with the position of those injuries on the skull. So I needed to speak with Ian and with Joe, because they've seen this report as well, to get their input into where this takes us. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the journey. If you're enjoying it, please do me a favor, subscribe. So then you'll be notified as soon as a new episode is released. And leave a review on whatever platform you use to access the podcast. That helps other people discover the podcast. Share it with your friends and colleagues. The more people that know about it, the more chance we have of solving it. That request to leave a review only applies if you love the podcast. If you hate it, firstly, what are you doing here? And secondly, don't go anywhere near the review button. We always like to learn about our listeners. Our listeners are all over the world. And because our listeners play such a very vital part in the investigation, many of you commit your time and effort on our behalf, and we are very, very grateful for that. In fact, most of what we're talking about this week was as a direct result of a listener interacting with us. So drop us a line, even if it's just to tell us what you like or dislike about the podcast, or to share your thoughts on it, or theories, or maybe suggest an idea for investigation. I promise you, we look at every one of them, we reply to every one of them, and many of them find their way into the podcast. Our email is thegentlemanofheligoland at gmail.com. Thegentlemanofheligoland 
at gmail.com. Of course, we're always on the Facebook page as well, so you can always reach us through that. So send us a message. We would love to hear from you. So we need to get back to this investigation and this report. So I convened a board meeting, got Joe and Ian together, just so we could go through this and just make sure we hadn't missed anything obvious. Right, the whole gang is here, which is nice. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi. And good afternoon, Ian. Good afternoon, Ken. <laughs> we've, obviously, we've been reading through this article that was in the Zeit. It's obviously fascinating because there's some information in there that we didn't know before, and there's some, certainly some pictures there that we've never seen before. So I thought, as we've all had a chance to kind of digest that, it might be worth just coming together and talking it through and just seeing what, what that tells us, what have we learned from all that additional information. So I guess the first place to start would be the injuries. At last, we've got a bit more detail on the injuries. Broken several ribs, and he's fractured his skull. In fact, on the picture, you can see that fracture in the skull. So anything jump out at you, Ian, in terms of having seen that? Did that change anything for you in terms of your thoughts? I don't think it changed anything. If anything, it reinforced the suicide theory rather than there being any sort of deliberate damage done. It, it looks to me, I'm not a medical expert, of course, but it, it looks to me like consistent injuries with having fallen onto something hard before hitting the water or even just falling into the water and hitting it hard. Yeah, there's no massive axe wound, is there? And that's the one thing. There's nothing obvious that, that is a massive giveaway for a homicide. No, no. I don't know how your skull fractures. It depends how you land on the water, doesn't it? But if that is the crack that's a fractured skull, it's a, it's a pretty severe one. Looks like it's cracked across the whole of the front half of the skull. The sort of injury that would be immediately fatal. What's your thoughts, Joe? You've, uh, you've had a chance to look at it as well. What, what do you think that kind of indicates? I was thinking about the skull fracture particularly, and... Um... Obviously, we can't see the back of the skull, so no. I don't know what's going on there. But the fracture that you can see, I was wondering whether that was possible to sustain just by falling into water from a height. Okay. And so I, I looked for some articles about, you know, how falling from a height into water can affect the body. Yeah. I found, and these were quite consistent findings, certainly fractured ribs. That's a given. Fractured ribs is a given. Something I found really interesting was that one coroner describes the injuries of somebody falling from a height, you know, into water, as multiple blunt force trauma. What I found intriguing was this term, multiple blunt force trauma, the term that's used for when somebody's been beaten up. I suppose the other thing we get to see looking at that skull, which is not an injury as such, but it's worth noting, is the teeth look unusual. I wondered about the teeth, because I was looking at those. He's missing two front teeth. He's missing loads of back teeth too, either side. So I am thinking he wore dentures. This is now put. The point I want to make is this. I read a study which reported that of 94 cases of unidentified North Sea bodies, 16 were identified through dental records. Tragedy here is... I think our gentleman would have been identified through those teeth. He sent those details through and Scotland Yard did not react. And it's a tragedy. 
Interesting, but but the fact that these teeth are kind of unusual pattern may be of use in the future if we're trying to identify who this person may be. Coming on to the clothing, there's new information about the clothing. We can actually see the shirt. Ian, what, what's your take on the whole clothing aspect? Uh, yeah, we see the shirt and it's got a label. Unfortunately, there's no detail on the label for us to do anything on that. I know that you feel as though you can see some pretty heavy blood staining on the shirt. I, I didn't look at it like that. I'm happy to go with it. If, if the crack on the side of the head has caused a multiple wounds and, and bleeding, etc., then I'm sure the shirt would be blood stained. But I was, I was more interested in, um, at the other end, the shoes, in, the, in that they just slipped in that they were size 46, like they've always been size 46, which is the European sizing. And any shoe chart will tell you that that is a size 12, 12 and a half foot not the 11, which I've seen repeated in various recent news reports as well. So the police are still not giving the right shoe size out. Yeah, it's definitely a 12. We, we, uh, or, or, and we've, we've, in preparation for this call, we were looking at Church's own shoe uh, system, uh, comparing uh, European to UK sizes, and they, they call it 12. These are 12s. There's no, there's pretty, no doubt about that. We got that confirmed by the Satcher guy. He's pretty sure they were they were talking mm. to so yeah no doubt about that i think yeah i mean i'll put a, a picture on the facebook of the shirt and certainly around the collar area both sides of the neck there's some fairly heavy brown staining light brown staining clearly you know this has been in the sea for months where the rest of the shirt is is quite clean actually oh yes i think that's blood ken faded blood that's definitely the shirt not the underpants with the brown staining <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. I, I would imagine that, both, yeah. to be honest. But but yeah, I think I think I think it is blood staining around the. Uh, but on the clothing, they did they did say that he had underpants, which we assumed that he would have. The one thing I, I picked out on this, there's a lot of information in this report about the tie and the fact that the, the speculation in Germany about the fact it might be a regimental tie that that those stripes on that tie act actually signify membership of a regiment in the army or a club of some type. Well, that's not right. Uh, regimental ties, club ties are not made by Marks and Spencer. You'd have to go to a bespoke shop for your particular club or regimental tie. Yeah. Marks and Spencer's didn't do that sort of um, mission. You know better than me, Ken. Yeah, absolutely no way uh, was this, because we know it was made by Marks and Spencer's. It is not a regimental tie. It is not a tie that designates membership of a club. And if, if German police are spending any time on that, they're wasting the time. So uh, I think they've cottoned on that it isn't, having spent 30 years looking at which regiment it might have been. <laughs> so. I think uh, there's a couple of other things. Firstly, it's great to get the actual coordinates that this person was found. And uh, I had a bit of a look at this because, uh, and of course, according to the report, these coordinates were written down as he was found, as he was being dragged out of the sea. So with every reason to expect they are correct. I firstly looked at them and thought, these are in the wrong, this is the wrong place. The reason, <laughs> the reason I, was, I was wrong on that was because actually the coordinates are in minutes and seconds, which is the old way of recording the coordinates. And in fact, now it's all done decimal. So I had to convert them to decimal. They're 20 kilometers to the west of Heligoland. Slightly interestingly, it's a bit further south than Heligoland as well. 
So actually, we know now the absolute point he was found, and it's slightly to the south, but 20 kilometers west. A couple of other things that is mentioned. Firstly, this issue of the fatty wax formation on, on the body. Ian, the fact that that was present, what does that tell us about our thoughts about how long he's been in the sea? Well, I think factoring in all of the caveats about environmental, specific environmental conditions affecting body decomposition, water temperature, what he had to eat, all the rest of it. I still think that the fact that he's been in long enough to have this fatty wax forming on his skin means that, for example, Jan Bayer going in just 11 days before he's pulled out couldn't, couldn't have got into that state. I think it narrows the window of time that we're looking at as to when this chap could have gone into the sea. I mean, I think if we're looking from January through to the end of June up till now, mm. I think I think we, we shave a, a month, maybe six weeks off that and go to January through to maybe mid-May. I think you're right. I think the presence of that probably suggests that he was in there for uh, months rather than weeks. And it certainly doesn't rule out, in fact it rules in, the, the chap who came off the Pride of Flanders. Yeah, that gives him three months, really, doesn't it, to, to yeah. walk up in Heligoland, which is plenty of time for this fatty wax formation to form. One other thing which is interesting is they gave the height definitively 197 centimetres. Mm. I've always had in my mind six foot five. 197 is closer to six foot six and six foot five, which is even taller. In, in, and in a strange way, it's even closer to the guy in Canada who we now know we can't be. But, I know. but he, we need to think of this guy as being six foot six. That's what he would have appeared in real life, particularly with shoes on. So uh, he's a giant. Just one thing, by the way, do you think that the fact that the injuries he's got of the fractured skull and fractured ribs, that says to me a fall more than a murder? A mur I think you get more injuries than that with a murder. You get stab injuries or, you know what I mean? You get your head caved in if someone's trying to kill you. This Finger absolutely. in the air, I'd say suicide. Finger in the air there, but I'm keeping a really open mind on this, Ken. Well, I think, yeah. uh, no, I, 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 think it's a, I think they're fall injuries. And I think that you don't fall by accident if you've tied shoe lasts to your belt. So I would agree exactly, with you, yeah. it's suicide. It's clearly not ruling suicide out. Great. Well, thanks for that, everyone. I really appreciate it. It's fascinating new information. There's a lot to work on there. Any, any thoughts, Ian, on, on where we go from here, really? I think we've got to look down the East Coast and maybe to the South Coast as far as the Isle of Wight to find people who have fallen off bridges, boats, where, cliffs, wherever they might have jumped from in an attempt to end their own life yeah. I think I think that's what we're looking for yeah and I know we've been scouring newspapers to try and find that type of person I think we've got to scour between January and mid-May we have come across tiny news reports without names etc to let us know that there's there's plenty of people to find certainly coming off the Humber Bridge for example there's a guy off the Tyne Bridge in Newcastle any of which could could be taken out to sea and drift across in that time frame. What we're saying here is that these injuries aren't ruling suicide out. We, Absolutely I mean, not. These injuries could have ruled suicide out. We could have looked at it and thought there was no way that's 
that's a suicide, it's got a gunshot wound. We know that's not the case. So, so what we're saying is suicide is still clearly an option and therefore we need to look at some of the places that people may have dropped into the water from a great height and ended up in Heligoland. Great. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Okay. Goodbye, Ian and Ken. All right. See you later, Joe. See you later, Ken. Bye-bye. A quick update on my favourite subject at the moment, which is currents. You remember I'd been doing a lot of research on currents last week, trying to ascertain where a body that's been found near Heligoland could have drifted from in the intervening three to six months. Now I had the actual coordinates, which I translated into metric, which is more modern. So they're 54.13 north by 7.50 east. Now armed with those coordinates, I set to work looking in a bit more detail as to what we could ascertain. And it's complicated, but one of the more interesting papers I'd read during that research phase was one called German Bite Residual Current Variability on a Daily Basis by a man called Ulrich Kallis. Now, the German Bite is the area exactly around Heligoland. I sent Herr Kallis an email about the case and happily we ended up having quite a detailed email correspondence. And Herr Kallis pointed out that it is very significantly complex essentially explained by the interplay of the short-term oscillations caused by regular tidal movements with major drift directions and changing wind conditions. And his overall assessment was simulations are of only partial use. They rapidly deteriorate in accuracy over a relatively short period of time and over a couple of months would not be very reliable. Now that's if we're trying to be exact, and I'm not trying to be exact, I'm really looking for trends. And the overall conclusion happily was clear. Air Callies confirmed, the mean North Sea circulation is clearly counterclockwise, which means west to east in its southern part around the channel and north to south along the coast of England. So. I think having had some further conversations in that subject, I am increasingly certain that we're on safe ground in assuming that our body had spent the last three to six months slowly drifting eastwards from either the English coast or from the English channel. So I think for now, I can leave that little obsession with currents behind. I spent a lot of time looking at that skull and it got me thinking, particularly that fracture running pretty much directly across the forehead, well below the hairline. What does that fracture tell us? Now I need to say up front, we can't see the back of the skull. It may have a huge axe wound in the back of it. Something tells me it doesn't because that might have been mentioned. All we have to go on is what we can see. A fine but continuous fracture running across the forehead. Now, as you know, I'm not a forensic scientist, but I will be reaching out to a few 
But whilst I do that, I decided to do some investigation myself into the science of skull fractures and what they can tell us about their origin. The other thing I became interested in is the damage that falling into water from height can do to the human body. It's fascinating and gruesome. But if we believe, one explanation is this man fell into the sea from height, it would be useful for us to know what happens when bodies do that. So this next section is gonna be about skull fractures and the injuries caused by falling into water from height. Now, have you ever heard of something called the hat brim line? I hadn't until about a week ago. But if I ever write a crime novel, I'll call it the hat brim line. Let me explain. The hat brim line is a rule that for many years forensic scientists have adopted as a means of working out whether head injuries are accidental or homicidal. Imagine a line that runs all the way around your head at where the circumference of your head is at its maximum. That would be about halfway up your forehead and all the way round. That is the hat brim line. If an injury occurs above the hat brim line, the probabilities are suggestive of a homicide. If an injury occurs below the hat brim line, the probabilities are suggestive of an accident. It's a general rule of thumb. It has, in academic papers, some significant detractors, but it is a real thing that people have relied on. And when you think about the logic, it makes sense. When someone is attacked and hit on the head, those blows rain down on the head, probably from something higher than the point of impact. Whereas if you fall, you generally will fall where the circumference of your head is greatest. That's the extremity of your skull. That's what will hit the ground or wherever it hits first. So injuries below or around the hat brim line generally tend to be accidental. Injuries in the higher part of the skull tend to be homicidal. That's important. And it's important because the lateral crack that we can see in the photograph, well, that's almost precisely at the hat brim line. It's not high on the head. Now I appreciate I'm going miles outside my area of competency, which is sadly microscopically small, but that skull fracture looks low on the skull to me, not high. And if we were to apply the hat brim line test, it looks more likely to me to be accidental. Now, when I say accidental, what I really mean is non-homicidal. So what I'm saying is that a suicide which caused these injuries, I would class as accidental. And when I look at the position of that injury, my senses say that's more likely 
to be non-homicidal than at the hand of another human being. Now, I want to talk about water, specifically the impact on the human body of falling into water from significant height. Now, I've looked at a number of studies in this subject that have been published over the years. Two things are important. The height that that person falls from before they hit the water, and even more important, the angle of entry into the water. If you enter the water in a streamlined fashion, the impact is far, far less. Cliff divers can dive from 100 feet because their angle of penetration into the water is so precise and the surface area that, that they expose when they breach the water is so small, like a toothpick, it means the body plummets deep into the water and therefore the deceleration forces on the body are much, much less. If that person jumped from a cliff and landed in a belly flop, they would go from extreme speed of falling to stop in a nanosecond. That has catastrophic effects on the human body. Whilst people diving from cliffs know they have to enter in a streamlined way, if it's an accident or you're committing suicide, you don't attempt to enter the water with such precision. You hit the water flat. That is what kills them, not the fall. Now, you may be wondering, why is he going into all this detail about water injuries? Well, it's because we've got this mini theory that this man may have fallen from a bridge or from a ferry. For example, the road level on the Humber Bridge near Hull, which is one of the biggest bridges in the UK, is 30 metres above the water, 100 feet. And from the deck of a ferry, probably less, 20, 25 metres. Falling from that height allows the human body to accelerate rapidly, but with no attempt to enter the water in a streamlined way, it hits the water like a solid. Now, there's an old saying, it's not the fall that kills you, it's the landing. Well, it's correct. The conversion of an accelerating mass to a stop in a nanosecond destroys all the moorings of the soft organs and tissues in the body. They are literally ripped apart. And if you're not unconscious at that point, death would definitely come as a friend. But what about bone fractures when people fall from 30, 40 meters? Well, ribs are broken, particularly if it's a frontal entry and the pelvis maybe. But what's noticeable is that skull fractures are very, very rare. The skull is the hardest bone in our body, and it's for a reason. It protects the most important organ, the brain. And in our research, falls of around 30 to 40 meters, skull fractures are far from common. So what does this mean in relation to this case, given we know that the gentleman of Heligoland had both rib fractures and a skull fracture? Well, it probably means falling directly into water from that height is unlikely to have caused both injuries. 
In order for the skull fracture to exist, there would need to be a secondary impact, probably in the act of falling, in the act of committing suicide. And if you're falling from, say, the centre of a bridge, that secondary impact is unlikely. But if you fell from a part of the bridge where you could hit your head on part of the structure as you fell, well, that could definitely cause a skull fracture. And in the case of a ferry, how could it happen there? Well, there are lots of protrusions in the stern of the boat, the back of the boat, which could cause that kind of injury. But what about the side of the vessel? Because in my mind, I think the side of the vessel is always the more likely jumping off point for someone committing suicide. Well, that's a really interesting subject because on many vessels, there's nothing. It's just a clear fall to the sea. But that's not the case on every vessel, particularly if that vessel has to have additional stability devices. That applies particularly to passenger ferries. Passengers don't want the normal rock and roll that you would normally see in a vessel. And so ferries are often fitted with protrusions down the side of the vessel to improve stability. These devices are called sponsons. Now, sponsons are situated above the waterline for much of the length of the vessel and they're huge metal stabilizers. If you threw yourself over the side of a passenger ferry that had sponsons, you would certainly hit the sponson about three quarters of your way down. The Pride of Flanders had sponsons. And I'll put a picture on Facebook showing you exactly what they are. That could be very important. We wanted to finish this episode with our thoughts on the question, is it a murder or is it a suicide? Ian put up a poll on the Facebook page which makes for very interesting reading and we thought it would be appropriate for us to let you know what our official line is on that question. Firstly, we have to say, we're dealing with probabilities. There are no certainties yet in this case. That may change if we find out the man from the Pride of Flanders was six foot six. But for now, we are dealing with probabilities, not certainties. We believe the probabilities in this case suggest the gentleman of Heligoland was a suicide victim. And I'd like to go through why we think that. There are six reasons. The first three are about the weights. The second three are about the injuries. So firstly, the weights. Number one, their size. The whole idea behind dumping a body with weights, if you are the perpetrator, is to put as much distance between you and the victim, as much time between the murder and the body's discovery. Why weight the body with weights that are so light that that is likely to minimize that effect? If you killed someone, you are not going to risk discovery by skimping on the weights. Number two, 
The choice of weights. Shoe lasts. Shoe lasts are unusual and they are traceable and they provide evidence. If you had murdered someone, would you use something as unusual and potentially incriminating as a shoe last? Particularly if, as we've heard, they were very recently in use. That's a big risk. With a completely free choice of the heaviest things you can possibly think of to weigh that body down with, these murderers chose shoe lasts. Really? Thirdly, the tying method. These murderers carefully tied two shoe lasts to the belt loops on the trousers, meticulously. That wouldn't have been easy, be difficult. And this must have happened, in that theory, after the murder. But there's no blood reported on the belt loops, when presumably the blood-stained perpetrator would be the person tying on these weights. We believe those weights were applied by the victim himself before choosing death. The second area is injuries. Let me take you through the three reasons why we believe those injuries, from what we can see, suggest suicide, not murder. As we've been discussing in this episode, those injuries could be homicidal, but they could be non-homicidal. And the first question is, does the position of the skull fracture suggest homicidal or non-homicidal? In our opinion, there is a suggestion of non-homicidal, accidental, inverted commas, falling. But there's also a couple of other things which are missing in relation to the injuries. There are no obvious homicide wounds. There are no stab wounds. There are no gunshot wounds. The only wounds on that body just happen to be the same wounds that can occur non-homicidally. We believe it's a big leap to suggest that those wounds must be homicidal. But there's a third thing about injuries. There's no defence wounds. There are no hand or arm injuries that we're aware of, that victims nearly always suffer as they attempt to defend themselves fighting for their lives. So three things there on injuries. The position of the wound on the head, the fact that there's nothing obvious that suggests homicide, and the absence of defence wounds. So in all, there are six reasons to think that's a suicide. And I haven't seen anything yet that is directly in favour of a homicide. Now, the police have all the information and we don't. There may be something that they have that is incontrovertibly homicidal. But if we're restricting this to the evidence that's in the public domain, we think it's much more likely to be suicide. So, whilst the German police are focusing on the homicide option, we are going to focus on the suicide option, because we think that's far more likely. So episode 9 will start to look at where if it is a suicide, this man could have fallen from. 
And we've already started to work on that and to look at reports of missing people from those kind of places. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. Mm-hmm.